The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Verses of chapter 4, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And it's with that hopeful note that we get into chapter 5 today. We're going to teach through all of chapter 5. And this is one of those chapters in uh, scripture, it's a genealogy, and my family's been making fun of me like, Dad, you have to preach a genealogy this week? That's going to be really exciting. And I get it. Uh, sometimes when you're reading through the Bible and you come to a genealogy, you're like, mm, okay, next chapter, and you just kind of keep going. But there's something really meaningful for us in this passage in chapter 5. Sincerely, I'm not just saying that because I'm the preacher and I'm supposed to. I have a little note that's on my desk. It, it's someone who's smarter than me one time said this. When, you, when we're reading scripture, we have to remember nothing is here by chance. Everything must be considered carefully, deliberately, and precisely. So God has put chapter 5 of Genesis in our midst for a reason. There's something he wants to say to us today in this text. And there's two things I want to kind of give you, two, two lenses through which to view this chapter today. Number one, we've got to remember the grace of God toward Adam and Eve in their sin. When they were in the garden, God said, Do not eat fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat it, surely you shall die. They eat the fruit, but their corpses are not laying at the base of a tree. God, in his grace, not only did he not kill them on the spot, but then he said to them, as God was speaking to Satan in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he told Satan that the offspring of Eve would crush his head. And so not only did they not die, God promised them offspring. So as we read genealogies, it's just the grace of God that allows humankind to continue to procreate. So, so see the grace of God in this genealogy. The second thing we see is we've got to remember the faithfulness of God to bring a redeemer. It was going to be through the seed of Eve that he would bring an offspring, a seed that would one day crush the head of Satan. So when we read through these genealogies, different generations after generation after generation, it, it forms a giant arrow that points us to Jesus. Why do you suppose Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy? To help us understand the faithfulness of God from generation to generation to bring about this head-crushing seed. And so as we read through this text, there's some interesting things I want you to take note of before we get into it. Uh, there's one phrase that is repeated multiple times in the next 32 verses. The phrase is, and he died. I want you to count with me in your head or on your fingers every time you read that phrase over these next 32 chapters, I'm going to quiz you. 32 verses. I'm going to quiz you when we get to the end of this reading to see how many times the phrase, and he died, appeared in our text. And the second thing I want you to pay attention to is there's a pattern that emerges as we go from generation to generation. At one point in this pattern, there's, a, there's an interruption. Uh, the, the pattern changes, and it's important that we notice this interruption. I'm not going to tell you where it is. I'm going to hope that you notice it as we read through these 32 verses. So open with me, if you would. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of generations of Adam. When God created Adam, he made him in the likeness of God. He, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. 
Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 107 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered uh, Mahalel. Kenan lived after he fathered uh, Mahalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah had lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called the name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Amen. Did you catch the phrase, and he died? Okay, how many times did the phrase, and he died, occur? Somebody. Eight times. Eight times times. We're going to come back to that because that's important. And did you notice the interruption in the pattern? When we get to the seventh generation, the interruption in the pattern was that Enoch did not die, right? There's something different that's going on there. The pattern changed. It's an interruption. That's important. We're going to come back to that later as well. Also, if you look at the top and tail of our, our text, the bookends, the first verse and the last verse, verse 1 and verse 32, we see that in verse 1, this is the generations of Adam. So we see Adam, the first human created, and then at the end we see Noah. So at the 30,000 foot view of our text, it's getting us from Adam to Noah, because once we get in chapter 6, we begin to unpack the story of Noah. So that's another thing that this passage is doing. God is getting us where he needs us to be. Title of my sermon today, very generically, is God's faithfulness, because I think one of the things we see when we look at this text, among many, is the faithfulness of God from generation to generation. And we're going to see four things in the text today. God's faithfulness is seen in his creation blessing. We're going to see that in the first couple of verses. The second thing we're going to see is God's faithfulness is seen above death's reign. Think of all those times we hear the phrase, and he died. The third thing we're going to see is God's faithfulness by death's defeat. And then the last thing we're going to see is God's faithfulness, faith, faithfulness through divine relief. The big idea today in my text, in my sermon, is simply this. God is faithful. Keep your eyes on the faithful promise keeper. Would you pray with me? 
Oh God, we just read 32 verses in Genesis. Uh, God, we covered 10 generations, untold amounts of years. And, and God, you're faithful through every, every moment, God, every second, every birth. The names we read, the names we don't read. God, remind us today of your faithfulness. And God, as we look at the text, as we, as we, as we consider what it is to walk with you, to walk in obedience and in faithfulness with you, God, would you just, would you reveal yourself to us by the preaching of your word today, God? Open our hearts and minds. Help us to see the things that you want us to see in this passage. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So yesterday, uh, the last couple days, Friday, me and some friends, Pastor Jeremy, Pastor Sam from Philippi, and, and, and Tom uh, went up uh, hiking in Crater Lake. Now, I know th- those of you that are from Oregon, like, that's not a big deal to you because you've probably seen Crater Lake a hundred times. It was a big deal to me because I haven't been out here. So I'm like, we got there, and we parked, and we had to run a car down and do this little deal, put on our sleds, and we started hiking, and we're trying to find a place to camp. And at Crater Lake, you can't... You can't <laughs> camp within a hundred feet of the rim and you, you can't be seen by the trail. And so you're trying to find these places to camp. And so we stopped a bunch of times and dropped our sleds and walked around and couldn't quite seem to find the right place to, to camp. And, and at one point we were kind of been walking around for three or four hours trying to find the right place to camp when we sort of just said, hey, let's just walk out into that spot over there and camp. And it felt kind of like a defeat because we knew the beautiful crater lake was up, up behind us, but we just couldn't seem to find the right place to go. It was getting difficult. We were getting tired. It was long in the day. The sun was baking our faces. And so we kind of just walked out in this field and we kind of had resolved, like, I think we should just camp here. But the view was crummy and it wasn't where we really wanted to be, but yeah, it just felt like the easier thing to do. And then Pastor Jeremy's like, we didn't walk all this way to look at a field. Like, we should probably not stay here. And so we're like, oh, okay, Jeremy. And so we put our sleds back on and we trudged back through the snow and, and we got to this hill and we could see where you might be able to get up on the top of this hill and have a cool view of Crater Lake, but it was straight uphill. And I had like a really heavy sled. I started to sludge. We slugged our way up this hill. We got on this, this little flat spot and man, it just opened up. Here's the, I took a picture. I, want to show, I know you guys have seen this a thousand times, but that's a picture I took from our camp spot. Isn't that amazing? Like that is so amazing that, that, that God creates that, that he allows us to, to be a part of it. But had we not slogged through, had we just given up when it was difficult, we would have missed the whole thing. The whole point of going to Crater Lake is to see Crater Lake, and we almost missed out on it because we are lazy and tired and distracted. I think about, you know, this idea of keeping our eyes on God that, that I think we need to do in this passage. Sometimes we, we just get distracted. We take our eyes off of God, and in so doing, we miss out on the incredible thing that he has for us because we, 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 we wander, we drift, we, we give up. And God has something really amazing for us to see in this text, but God has an amazing thing to do in our lives, and he calls us to this life of faithfulness to keep our eyes on him. And as we've been journeying through Genesis, it's been, this, it's been a challenging book, I'm not going to lie. As a preacher, it's been really challenging for me. So many questions this text has raised. I feel inadequate week in and week out trying to, con- to communicate what needs to be communicated, un- understanding the, the main idea of the passage week in and week out. And there hasn't been a week that has come by where I haven't had a series of questions or some areas in my heart where I'm struggling a little bit. As, as, as a team, we gather on Tuesdays and we study the text together. And one of the questions we ask each week when we look at the text we're going to preach is, when initially reading this text, what was confusing? We have a little worksheet we work off of. And every week when I'm writing down the things that are confusing, I have multiple bullet points as I'm preaching through Genesis. I mean, just last week, we we read that Cain, who was the first human born, Adam and Eve were created, Cain was born, 
we read that when he left the presence of the Lord, he found a wife. That kind of raises the question, right? Like, okay, how did the first human find a wife? It's one of these questions you can ask yourself. By the way, I think our text today answers that question. Verse 4 of our text today, it says that Adam had other sons and daughters. That's where he found a wife. More on that later. But, but the, the text raises lots of questions. And Genesis itself can raise lots of questions. Uh, and we need to ask those questions, but we also need to remember what is the purpose of the book of Genesis. I, I was reminded this week that Genesis was not written to provide an answer for every human curiosity. We bring a lot of human curiosity to this text, and we ask a lot of questions. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask questions of the text. It's just when we're looking at this text, we don't want to get off track, find ourselves down a rabbit hole, and then somehow miss out on the intent of the book. It's important not to get lost in some of these human curiosity quests that can get us off what God is saying here. And here's what God is saying in the book of Genesis. These chapters are here. These first chapters of Genesis are here to introduce us to God. These are words that God had had given that we might know him and see him and and fix our eyes on him, this faithful, promise-making, promise-keeping God. Think of the original audience, right? It was these people, these Hebrews that had been delivered from, from oppression at the hands of the Egyptians. They were wandering in the desert and they were covenanting with this God, Yahweh. And here in this book, God is letting himself be known. Who is this God that they are developing a covenant relationship with? Genesis is here that we might know God, see God, understand. And God in his wisdom, he has preserved the words of Genesis for us today. Like the Israelites, as we read this text, they are here that we might see God. And so as we dig into even these 32 verses here today, there are some very important things that God is saying to us today in these these verses. And, And what he's saying to all who hear these words, he's saying, I have made a promise to provide salvation. I'm going to keep my promise. I made a promise when I was speaking a curse over, over Satan in the Garden of Eden that I'm going, to, I'm going to bring a seed that will crush the head of Satan, that will overcome sin and death. And, and, and as we read this text, God is saying, watch me. Watch me. A couple weeks ago I said, there's so much going on in the foreground, so much human drama. We get focused in on this human drama. We can forget that the backdrop of all of it is a faithful God who's working out his purpose and keeping his promise. So God says, watch me as I keep my promise. He's saying, watch me as I work throughout the details of human history and through the details of countless lives. Watch me as I cause all things to work together to bring about my will and my purpose. And so if you look at these first two verses, what is it that God is wanting us to see? Well, in in these first two verses, he wants us to see his creation blessing. God's faithfulness is seen in creation blessing. He writes, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. This text begins with a phrase, uh, this is the book of of the generations of Adam. A book is a a written account of any length, and and as we read this this in in verse 1 of chapter 5, it seems to indicate that this chapter was initially a self-contained unit, containing all these genealogies. In in these first few lines, our attention is pointed back to Genesis chapter 1. It's kind of a a restating of all that happened in the creation of humankind in the first two chapters. 
Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a summary of the creation account. And, and what Moses wants us to see is that mankind was created by God to bear his image. In, in the, the retrospective looking at the creation of humankind being, being, being created to bear the image of God is a reminder to, to us and to the original audience that, that all the descendants of Adam and Seth had not had the image of God obliterated with them when the fall entered humankind. Sin did not diminish that. Even though humankind had fallen into sin, even though sin and death had entered the world, humankind is still image bearers of creator God. And we read that God named them man. That word man is literally Adam. You know, the, 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 there's a noun and a proper noun of the word Adam. God named humankind Adam. And as, a, as we read this idea of a father naming his son, just imagine a, a first-time dad holding his son or his daughter in his arms, looking with love and, and, and affection and intimacy upon the face of his newborn child who, who bears his image and him naming his son or his daughter with love. That's the picture that, that, that Moses is painting here of God naming humankind. In the following verses, we're going to see that, that generation after generation, earthly fathers then name their sons. The same pattern of our heavenly father naming humankind. Each new generation is pointing back to the original father. Not only is Adam the father of Seth and Seth the father, the father of Enosh and so on and so forth, but God is the father of them all. He is our father. The image that emerges here is one of a, of a loving father who is renewing his blessing from generation to generation. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them. And he named them man when they were created. This blessing that God is, is speaking in again in, in verse, verse 2 of chapter 5 is a reminder of the blessing he spoke in chapter 1, verse 28. Remember the blessing of God. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And now in the following verses in chapter 5, as we go from generation to generation to generation, we see that these, these Sethites, the, this, this genealogy of Adam and Seth, they are doing the very thing that God blessed them to do. They're, they're living in the blessing of God as they have children and as they fill the earth. And so the author here is laying a foundation for the rest of Scripture. Here's what one person writes. Of God, the, the, the author is laying a foundation for the rest of Scripture of a God as, as a loving father ensuring the future well-being of his children through the provision of an inherited blessing. And so that's what we see in the first two verses. God is faithful. Let's keep our eyes on the faithful promise keeper. The second thing we see is that God's faithfulness is, is seen... Uh, Above death's reign. God's faithfulness is seen here above death's reign. We, we see the phrase, and he died eight times in our text. It, it's laced throughout the whole passage. Eight times we hear it, and he died. The, the, the word in Hebrew is a single word. It's the word muth. It appears eight times in our passage. And even with the optimism of the first couple of verses, this picture of, of Father God blessing his image bearers, there is still in this passage the harsh reality uh, that results from sin. There's the fall, and, and the result of sin in, in the fall is death. Death reigns in this passage. Even though these people live it, like multiple centuries, ultimately they still face death. Some have described this chapter as bleak or even dark. One pastor writes this, the Sethites lived under the double-edged sword of human experience. Life produces hope only to see it dashed by the all-too-real finality of death. And so it has been since the fall. 
we read that these human beings, the first humans lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Now there's lots of questions, scientific questions about how this can be. Again, this can become one of those rabbit holes that takes us away from the intent of the text. But there are lots of people that are a thousand times smarter than me have thought through some of these concerns. And there's different, you know, the human genetic code wouldn't have been contaminated. It would have been free of defects. The, the pre-flood world was a different world altogether. We don't understand all that was going on uh, uh, that was enabling human beings to live this length. We were even talking about some of the other theories that exist about this. But the text says what the text says. And even with the incredibly long lifespans recorded in this genealogy, there still was a day of reckoning for every person. Because we read Muth, and he died. Whether it's 90 years or 900 years, Muth. The day of reckoning came for every person. Death still reigned. Muth, 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 Muth. This is a passage of death. Sin has consequences. The fall of Adam and Eve brought death to all. This is a dark cloud that covers this chapter. It's a dark cloud that covers humanity. And we're reminded of it constantly. In my line of work, of course, as a pastor, I tend to be around death quite a bit. In my previous community, I was a chaplain for the police department, which enabled me to be around death a lot. My responsibilities were death notifications and being on death scenes often. I remember one day in particular. It was a February, cold day. I got called out to a scene of a suicide. And it was a teenage girl, about my daughter's age. I remember getting to this house, and I remember sitting in my car in the front, and I saw some of the emergency vehicles that were there, and some of the paramedics were leaving. And I knew it was dark. I knew it was going to be hard, so I asked God to give me strength. And I walk in the house, and uh, the scene was upstairs, and I remember walking up there, and, and I'll spare you the details. It was a horrible scene. And I remember sitting down with a dad who was sitting there by his daughter. And uh, it was horrible. It was just one of the darkest moments ever, right? Just absolutely irredeemable, it felt like. I was there for a couple hours. Eventually, this girl's mother came home, and I remember her coming in the house and collapsing and wailing. And I remember her looking at me and asking these penetrating questions about why a loving God would allow this sort of thing to happen. And then before the medical examiner took this, this little girl away, I went up with the father to say goodbye to her. And I remember just sitting there as this father just said goodbye to his daughter. Again, I'll spare you the details. It was horrible. It was just horrible. I mean, as, as dark as it gets. And I remained in the home until the, this young lady's body was removed from the home. I gave my card and said goodbye to the family. And I held it together, surprisingly. And I, I remember getting to my car that day. And I remember sitting in my car. And as soon as the car door shut, I just sobbed just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And for a few moments, all I saw was death. For a few moments, all I saw was the face of that little girl with her dad cupping her face in his hands, repeating her name over and over and over again. And it was all death. And I thought, man, it was dark. But in the middle of that, I was reminded, no, 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 Paul, no. Death doesn't have the final word. Death does not reign. God has something to say about death. There's hope. I was reminded of the words of, of Paul in Romans. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. I repeated that. I was reminded, no, 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 no. No, the gospel breaks the power of death. The gospel brings light to these dark moments. Muth no longer has the final say when it comes to Jesus. 
I was reminded that God is faithful, and I was reminded to lift my eyes from the darkness of death and focus and, and keep them on the promise keeper who has overcome these things. By preserving and, and tracing this godly line from Adam to Noah, we're reminded, especially in a few moments when we get to, to Methuselah or when we get to, to Enoch, that death does not have the final say. And we even see God's intimate and specific love for these people even though they die. This passage is amazing because it takes us from, from Adam to Noah. Later we see a genealogy taking us from Noah to Abraham. And then in the Gospels, we see the genealogy taking us from Abraham to David and then from David to Jesus. And we're reminded that this is an arrow. This is God fulfilling his promise. This is God pointing us to the one who would overcome these things. These genealogies are, are arrows that point us to Jesus. I read this week that God's original plan of blessing for all humankind, though thwarted by human folly, will nevertheless be restored by the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the line of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ himself. And even when we see God's, even when we look at this text, we see the unique and specific way God loves these people. It's not like the Cainite genealogy of chapter 4. In the Cainite genealogy of chapter 4, the people that had left the presence of God, it just said their names. But here we read all these specific and unique details about each person. How many kids, the name of their first kid that they had more sons and daughters, how many years they lived before and after the birth of their children. And as we read all these specific things, we're reminded that, that, that these details speak about God who, who, who loves these people in this genealogy. Each individual is important to God's eternal economy. When it came to, to Cain's genealogy in chapter 4, these were people who left the presence of God. And in the history of salvation, the family of Cain is irrelevant, but not so with this genealogy of Seth. It's through Seth. It's the line that through Seth that takes us to Jesus. So God is faithfully working out his plan and his purpose through the line of Seth. It's extremely relevant. And as the death seems to, to reign on the earth, above it all, above all this mooth, is an eternal loving father who is faithfully keeping his promise. Death can't thwart the promise of God. He is faithful. And so as we read the text, even with the overwhelming sense of the word death in the text, keep our eyes on the faithful promise keeper. And that takes us to the third part of our text. His faithfulness is seen by death's defeat. The faithfulness of God is seen by death's defeat in verses 21 through 24. Remember that place where the pattern was interrupted, where it was different, where we read of Enoch that he walked with God and was not, and for God took him in verse 24? And so there's something going on here that's really unique. What does it mean that, that, that he, he was not, for God took him? What does it mean that we don't read and he died? The word muth is not in this passage. How interesting is we look at this text. You know, if you go back again, I, I'm referring a lot to last week because the, the, the genealogy of Cain is very interesting in comparison to the genealogy of Seth here in chapter 5. And, and in both genealogies, in the seventh generation, there is this introduction to a break in the pattern. In chapter 4, in Cain's genealogy, we see an evil person. If you remember, if you were here last week, his name was Lamech. He was number seven in the Canaanite genealogy. He was a vile man who worshipped the sword and who elevated death. In the Sethite genealogy in chapter five, where we are today, in the seventh generation is Enoch. Enoch is number seven in the Sethite genealogy. He is a humble man who walks with God and elevates life. One sung of death in the Canaanite genealogy and the other of life in the Sethite genealogy. 
One scholar puts it this way. These two, Lamech and Enoch, are placed in eternal antithesis. They are hell and heaven, exponential death and unabounded life. There is wisdom for all in the life of Enoch. So so as we focus in here on this unique story of a man who was no more, Enoch, we see see the details of, of his life recorded here, and they depart from everything we've read before or after. With Enoch, there's the description of him walking with God, and then, then he was no more. And so as I look at that phrase that Enoch walked with God, that phrase is only mentioned uh, of one other person in Scripture. It's mentioned uh, twice here in relationship to Enoch. Then in the next chapter, verse 9, of Enoch's great-grandson Noah, we read that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. So Enoch's legacy of walking with God somehow was passed on to his great-grandson Noah. But he walked with God. So what does that mean? I mean, that's a phrase, that's a Christianese phrase we talk about. How's your walk? Are you walking with the Lord? How's it going? What does it mean that, Noah wa- or that, that Enoch walked with God? Well, the Hebrew here for, for, for walk, and especially within this context, it, it alludes to an intimate side-by-side walking. It's a picture here of Enoch walking in a highly personal, highly intimate way with God. And if we, if we look at Enoch, we're really blessed in that the author of Hebrews in the New Testament peers back at Enoch and gives us a commentary on, on what it means that Enoch both walked with God and that he was no more. So if you, if you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 5 and 6. Because it's in this chapter that, that the author of Hebrews is sort of commending all the heroes of faith in the Old Testament. Chapter 11 of Hebrews has often been called the, the Saints Hall of Fame, the honor roll of Old Testament saints, the, the Hall of Heroes, the Heroes of Faith, all these different sort of names because it highlights these, these folks in the Old Testament, these men and women who, who lived faithful lives and they attest to the value of living by faith. Uh, each of these people that we see in chapter 11 then is referred to in, in, Genesis, or in Hebrews chapter 12 as the cloud of witnesses who give a powerful testimony to the Hebrews that, that they, should, they should come to faith in God and they should trust in the truth of Christ. And so Enoch is mentioned right here in verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because he had, God had taken him now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. The phrase having pleased God uh, is another way of saying that he walked with God. The, the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates that phrase, uh, Enoch walked with God, to he pleased God. And the question we ask then, what was it about Enoch that pleased God? In other words, what does it mean that Enoch walked with God? Well, I think we have a good insight here in verse 6. Now, before Enoch was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, verse 6, and without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, the author of Hebrews says. Or stated positively, John Piper stated this positively, and I read this earlier this week, that only with faith will our obedience be pleasing to God? See, obedience without faith is legalism and it's man-centered. Obedience with faith is worship and it's God-centered. They both look the same on the outside, but the heart motivation is entirely different. 
Enoch walked with God. He wasn't chasing after God in his own strength, trying desperately to catch up and be noticed, like some forgotten child trying desperately to keep up with their disinterested and unloving father, some little toddler behind their dad on a path, desperately with their little immature legs trying to keep up and get noticed, mustering up enough strength to, to, to get even with dad and remain with dad, all the emphasis being on the child's ability to conjure up strength and speed. That's not the picture here of Enoch walking with God. He walked with God. It was an intimate walk. And God noticed and God was pleased with Enoch. And it was an intimate side-by-side journeying together. And what was it about Enoch's faith? The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He simply says, to please God. To draw near to God, one must believe that he exists and believe that that he rewards those who seek him. In other words, the faith of Enoch that pleased God was a faith that both believed that there is a God and then, and then that God rewards those who sincerely seek him. So it's not just belief. Satan believes in God, but there's this intimacy. That Enoch had this relational intimacy of believing that God w- would reward those who seek after him. It was a closeness. It was a relational knowing and being known. And the focus of Enoch's of faith wasn't Enoch. The focus of, uh, of Enoch's faith was on God. And, and that's one of the huge discussions and, and the challenges we, we get into when we start talking about faith. Sometimes we think that faith is something that we have to conjure up within ourselves and, and we make it about us. God, if only I had enough faith. And we're not even looking at God. We think it's this weird like force that we can acquire by some internal uh, self-will. That, that's not what's going on here. God, if only I had enough faith, dot, dot, dot. No, we're, we're like this little toddler with clumsy steps. We tried, try to make it about us and our ability to keep up. That's not what's going on here. Enoch's faith was a, was a faith that was intimate and it was focused on God. When I was a kid, my dad and I would trap often in, in the Bitterroot River in western Montana. And uh, we'd often have on the valley floors, we'd have for like uh, muskrats, otters, beaver, uh, fox, and then we'd have a trap line up in, the, up in the mountains. And I know that sounds barbaric, but that's just how I grew up. And I remember my dad and I would always have a trap line on the river bottom. And as a little kid, I'd go check traps with my dad. And we'd get down to the river bottom, we'd park. And, and we went to this place where there was no bridge, but our traps were on the other side of one of the branches of the Bitterroot River. And the only way to get to the other side was we had to walk across the river. Well, I didn't have hip waders, and I was a little kid at first, and I would get swept away. So from my earliest memories, I'd hop on my dad's back, and he had hip waders, and he'd just carry me across the river and plop me on the other side, and we'd check our traps. And he'd carry me back, and we'd hop in the car and go home. This went on for years. Well, pretty soon, I'm taller than my dad. And I'm like 6'1", and my dad's 5'9", and we get to the river, and I'm like, okay, daddy. We hop on my dad's back with my giant arms dangling over my father, and he would carry me across the river and carry me back. I trusted in my dad's strength. Like, I didn't worry. I, 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 there nothing, I offered nothing in that equation. All I offered was I just submitted to him. And I trusted in his strength. And I trusted in his arms. And I trusted in where he was walking. And I was along for the ride. That's the picture here. Enoch walked with God. This is not about Enoch being a, a rock star. This is about Enoch recognizing who's great in this equation. And it wasn't Enoch. My faith in my father wasn't based on my own strength, but on his, Enoch's faith, is not focused on his ability to be faithful. It's focused on the, the only truly faithful one. Enoch's example is this. Faith is not a power that you and I wield. It's a submissive trust in the one who wields all power. I'm going to say that again. Faith is not a power that you and I wield. 
It's a submissive trust in the one who wields all power. The image of walking with God is not a compulsive, reactionary, fearful, tiresome, wearisome endeavor. The image here is one of a slow, easy, restful, trusting walking. It's resting in the greatness and in the power of God. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's keeping close to and keeping eyes on God. It's about Him. Faith is not a power that you and I wield. It's a submissive trust in the one who wields all power. God is the one who wields all power. He is the faithful one. Enoch knew to keep his eyes on the faithful promise keeper. The New Testament uses the language of abiding to illustrate what this intimate walking with God looks like. Jesus said in John 15, uh, he talked about abiding and he used an agricultural example of, of vines. He said, abide in me, John 15, 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And here's the famous passage. I am the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You see where the focus is on this relationship. To abide is to live in, continue in, or to remain connected to. And so to abide in Christ is to live in him. It's to remain in him. And Christ uses this agricultural metaphor. It's, an, it's this idea of a vine and a branch. Have you ever plucked a branch off of a vine? Even if you put it in a cup of water, what's it live, a day or two? Have you ever seen a, a, a vine that has produced fruit on its own? No. All the vine does is it stays connected to the branch and then through the miracle of, of, of life, nutrients get sucked up from the soil, rains fall from the heavens, some miraculous thing happens, the nutrients come through the branch, come out through the vine. All the vine does is just stay where it's at and it's the miracle of what God does that fruit is produced. It's not the fruit of the branch or it's not the fruit of the vine, it's the fruit of the branch. And so with these, this idea that we sometimes have of faith and we make it about us, it's like, the, it's like the vine breaking away from the branch and saying, I'm going to produce a grape apart from the branch. How ridiculous. I once time heard a preacher say, when's the last time you looked at a, at a vineyard and you saw the branch just going, oh, I'm going to produce fruit. No, what the, the branch just stays connected. It abides. The miracle is what happens in the branch. That's the picture Jesus says. This is what walking with God looks like. It's trusting in Him, in His greatness, in His It's just staying close. It's staying connected. It's not making it about us. God is faithful. Abide in the only truly faithful one. John, the apostle, later on in his letter, 1 John 4, he says, whoever says he abides in Him in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. So when we abide in Christ and we're connected with him, that's when we walk with him. That's what walking with God looks like. God is faithful and we abide in the only truly faithful one. Or, or said another way, God is faithful. Keep your eyes on the faithful promise keeper. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. This language is similar to what we see in 2 Kings when we hear about Elijah being taken up by the chariots of fire. Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Like Enoch, Elijah was taken up so that he should not see death. It's fanciful. That's weird. What's that even mean? But then I'm reminded of the words of Jesus 
to Martha in John chapter 11. Do you remember these words? Her brother had died. She was fretting. She was grieving. Jesus was delayed in his, in his return to come help. And, and when Jesus gets into town, Martha, having grieved over the death of her brother, she runs out and she meets Jesus. And she kind of asks some questions like, Jesus, if you only had been here sooner, like, where have you been? My brother would be alive. And that starts this conversation about life and death. And it finishes with Jesus saying this, John 11, verses 25 through 27. Here's what Jesus says to Martha. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives in me and believes in me shall never die. He asks her, do you believe this, Martha? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. The message is that genuine trust in Christ is an abiding in Christ that brings people into Christ And all those who are in Christ shall never die, Jesus says. The the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's not so crazy after all to read this passage about Enoch. The overall picture here is is when we look at Enoch and all that's going on in in these few verses, it's it's one of a slowed down life. It's it's one of a life that is vertically focused. It's an abiding, intimate life. It's a walking with God. It's a knowing and being known. And so for each of us here, that's what we're trying to figure out. We, we come to church week in and week out because we want to live the life of faith. We want to know what it means to abide. We want to walk with God. We want to know what, what it is that, that, that Enoch had. What does Jesus mean? When, and how do, we, how do we work that out through the details of life? I mean, when the sun is shining and the details of life are fine and we're not being pressed in any way, it seems like it's something we can do, but introduce some external stimulus in this walking with God thing gets a little bit more challenging. I, I've discovered that there's more than three, but at least three ways that we can sometimes get enticed away or pulled away or or our walk with God can become cumbersome and difficult. Number one is through pain. Oftentimes through through the pain of grief, the pain of loss, chronic pain, mental illness, you name it. You've all felt it because that's the human experience. Oftentimes it's pain that really interferes with this intimate walking with God. Sometimes it's false teaching. Sometimes we just think there's something else they got to know. There's a hidden secret that I can have access to and we get enticed away. We get down a rabbit hole and we take our eyes off of him. Sometimes it's through spiritual drift that we don't recognize at first and usually it involves an idol of some kind, career, relationship, comfort. So the question is, when I'm in pain, I mean, this is a hard, like, I do not want to be trite about your pain at all. I'm not trying to be trite and cute about your pain. Lord knows we've experienced pain. I've experienced pain. But when you're in pain, the question becomes, do I trust God with this pain he's allowing me to have? You've heard me say it before. God's not asleep at the wheel. He's not oblivious to the circumstances of your life. He knows exactly what you're going through. And if there's pain in your life, there's a reason. Somehow, some, if you're in Christ... And if Jesus was punished for you on the cross, like Timothy Keller says, if you're in Christ and you know that Christ has died in your place, then the pain you're feeling is not punishment because Christ was punished for you, right? The pain you're feeling then is designed by God on some level for your good. So, pain then, rather than driving us away from God, can be the very thing that brings us closer to him. An intimate walking with God through the valley of the shadow of death where he protects us and guides us. Sometimes we get enticed away through false teaching. 
And there's lots of ways to tell a false teaching. Here's what I think the most fundamental, the most fundamental thing, the foundational thing that most all false teachings have in common is where's the focus? Right? The point of my sermon today is, is, is uh, God is faithful. Keep your eyes on the faithful promise keeper. Every false teaching on some level wants you to take your eyes off God and put them on yourself. On some level, you're your own savior. You're going to have a secret knowledge. You're going to know something nobody else knows. You get caught up in a false teaching that makes you your own savior. It elevates you. It feeds your ego. So in a way, it's just taking your eyes off God and putting it on yourself. It destroys a walk with God. It's the antithesis of abiding. And sometimes it's just drift. You know, life gets in the way. Career takes off. Pain sucks, and so we're trying to find relief from pain. Habitual sin behavior, comfort, security, whatever it may be. And we're, we're putting our eyes on something else other than God to bring satisfaction and meaning and comfort and relief. And so I guess, I guess as we think about Enoch as sort of a, an example, I suppose, a, this picture of walking with God, it causes us to reflect on our walk with God. And the question we have to ask is, is where are my eyes? Are you looking to the one who is faithful? Are you keeping your eyes on the faithful promise keeper? Or are your eyes on the pain? Or are your eyes on yourself? Or are your eyes on the idol? Only God is faithful. Keep your eyes on the faithful promise keeper. And lastly, and quickly, we keep our eyes on God. Uh, we see in the last, in verse 29 here, this, this, this song of Noah's father, this, this quote of Noah's father in verse 29, we see that God is faithful through uh, divine relief. His faithfulness is seen through divine relief. Uh, Lamech, the father of Noah, uh, called his son's name Noah, which means rest. And here's what he says in verse 29 of his son. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech's song here is one of expectation. It's one of an expectation of rest and relief. He expects that his son is going to bring comfort from the pain and toil of working in the soil. The pain and toil that was spoken in, in, in judgment over uh, Adam in Genesis chapter 3. And the name Lamech should sound familiar. This is not the same Lamech in chapter 4 who sang songs of death. This is Lamech in chapter 5. This is Seth's Lamech, not Cain's Lamech. But in both genealogies, both Lamechs are speaking. The, the, the Lamech in chapter 4, the vile, godless Lamech, the murderer, he speaks words of arrogance, where this Lamech, the father of Noah, Seth's Lamech, he, he, he's remembered for speaking words of yearning. This father of Noah speaks of a deep yearning for rest and for relief in the wake of death, 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 death. In the aftermath of living on the cursed ground, Lamech speaks of a deep yearning that he and his people have for relief. And much like Cain's Lamech's words, the murderous words in chapter 4 sort of personified a godless culture, here the words of Seth's Lamech in chapter 5, they seem to personify a yearning among this godly line that's being preserved through Seth's genealogy. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And as people toil over the cursed ground, as the world of death causes painful work and causes hands to toil over their labors, the second Lamech speaks of a coming rest, a coming relief, and it will be his son Noah that will bring this rest and relief. And yet as we read these words... Living in a world where we're already in Christ, but we're not yet in glory, 
uh, we live with the same sense of yearning. We, we live with the same sense of angst. We too desire rest and relief. And I think the Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8. I, I brought out an old, my old a New Living Translation Bible because I wanted to read the words of Paul about this angst, this yearning that we live with as believers. Romans 8, beginning in verse 22. Paul writes, For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And even we Christians, although we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, also we groan to be released from pain and suffering. We too wait anxiously for that day when God will give us our full rights as his children, including the new bodies he has promised us. Now that we are saved, we eagerly look forward to this freedom. For if you already have something, you don't need hope for it. You don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. This is the life of the believer. We live in a world that is groaning. I mean, just don't turn on the news, but turn on the news, right? We live in a world that is groaning, but we have this patient confidence that Christ has overcome this world. And there is a day, there is a day when all of us who are in Christ will stand in his presence and will hear a voice from the throne say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And they will dwell with them, and, he will, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the hope of the Christian. That's the hope of the gospel. Noah was looking for the one who would bring relief from their work and toil. We know the one who has brought relief, who's overcome sin, who's overcome death. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the promised seed of Eve who has crushed the head of Satan. He is the one who came through the line of Seth, through Noah, through Abraham, through David, to us, to the cross, out of the tomb, to the right hand of God. He is the faithful one. God is faithful. Keep your eyes on the faithful promise keeper. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm so thankful for this text, this boring genealogy. I confess uh, a lack of desire to even preach this text a few weeks ago, God, but I'm so thankful for the way you reveal yourself in this passage. So thankful for your faithfulness, God, to, to preserve a line, to point us, to give us these rich words that, that, that point us to Jesus, that point us to the cross, that point us to the work of Christ on our behalf. God, his shed blood, God, his death, his resurrection, God, the hope of new life we have in him. So God, my prayer today for those of us that are gathered in this place, for those of us that are tuning in online, God, that we could lift our eyes today. God, that we can be reminded that never once did we, did we walk alone. God, never once were we on our own. God, you've always walked with us. God, you've always been with us. God, to help us to, to strip those things that have gotten in the way. God, help us take our eyes off the pain, take our, our eyes off ourselves Take our eyes off comfort or whatever it may be, God, and fix our eyes on you. God, we love you. Thank you that you love us, God. God, be with us today. As we stand and, and sing a, a song or two, God, may they be songs of authentic worship lifted to you, this God who loves us, who walks with us, who saves us, who redeems us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.